All right, we are back. I'm Janine, and this is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. This is Get the Funk Out. And if you've never heard of the show and thinking, what is that? Uh, I, as I mentioned at the top of the hour, I've been here since 2011 doing this show. I actually started at KUCI 2007 as a DJ and then switched to this show, uh, 2011. And if you visit the show blog, you can learn more about it, uh, getthefunkoutshow.kuci.org. I feature a lot of guests talking about moving through life's curveballs, the ups and the downs and things they learned about themselves, uh, projects they've been involved with, and then I integrate a lot of other interesting guests along that line as well. So standing by in the second half of the show is Judy Wu. She's a professor right here at UCI in Asian American Studies and director of the Humanities Center and historian talking about her book, Fierce and Fearless, Patsy Takamoto Mink, First Woman of Color in Congress. Welcome to the show. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Professor, do me a favor, please. Could you pronounce your full name? Because I didn't want to mess it up. Sure. (laughs) My name is Judy Zudring Wu. Perfect. Okay. I was going to call you Judy Wu, but I thought, I don't want to leave out your middle name in fear of mispronouncing it, so thank you. So Thank you so much for having me this morning. My pleasure. Uh, you know what? I was really excited to have you on. Uh, Kara had sent something out, as well as um, you were on a really interesting podcast that she did, and I put the link on my show blog. Um, you did it with Wendy Mink, uh, the daughter of Patsy. And uh, So tell me, I'm going to start from the top. How did you uh, decide to write this book? This started 10 years ago. <laughs> Wow. And um, my books take an average of 10 years. And I remember when I first met Wendy and told her that, she was a little bit shocked. She's more (laughs) prolific than I am. And she reminded me how old she was and was hoping that we could finish (laughs) in time. (laughs) Um, But I was looking for a new project and had always heard of Patsy Link. It's so unusual for an Asian-American woman to be in Congress. Yes. And she was the first one of color to be in Congress. And I really thought about that, and I was thinking, well, why hasn't anybody written about her? Why yes. hasn't really anyone really given her full attention? Right. And I remember writing to my friend and saying, has anybody working on this? Um, and I think it's because in my field, which are Asian American history and women's history, there's a tendency to think about grassroots social movements, especially during the 60s and 70s, mm-hmm. to think about how everyday people were changing their lives, challenge the powers that be. And so it's really unusual to think about someone who's in the halls of Congress who's doing similar work. Yes. Um, but, you know, it could be seen as part of the establishment. Yes. So um, it, it was just really exciting for me to think about how do I talk about her life? Mm-hmm. Um, how do I make contact with her family? How do I collaborate with them? So it, it's been an incredible journey. It's really incredible. I mean, here it's the 50th anniversary of Title IX, and she is such a pioneer. Yes, absolutely. Um, She was the first woman in Congress. She ran for the U.S. presidency in 1972. Shirley Chisholm also ran that year. They were political allies in Congress, having very similar stances on issues related to the war, racial equality, gender equity. 
And so they actually made a deal with each other that they would literally directly compete with each other. That's good. Um, so there were just so many things that were fascinating about passing these lives that is was a pleasure to try to explore. Yeah. I have a quote here on, on my show blog. Um, Lot from you. Lots of people associate Title IX with equality in collegiate sports, but it's also about admissions, scholarships, housing, and employment. It established the basic legal principle of gender, gender, gender equity and completely revolutionized education in America. Absolutely. I love that. Yeah, I just gave a presentation to middle schools. Um, in the area that I live, and I asked the students, had anybody heard about Patsy Mink? And some of the students were very sweet. They had organized my visit, and so they did research. Um, <laughs> so they knew about Patsy okay. Mink, but nobody else. And I asked if they knew about Title IX. Nobody raised their hand. So oh. I think for this generation, especially for the younger generation, they may take a lot of the opportunities for granted, mm-hmm. right? You think about the number of, of young women who play soccer, right? the number of young women who play volleyball. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, um, this is the legal principle that establishes this right. as a legal threshold. Mm-hmm. And we often associate with sports, and it has been spectacular with sports, but it really is all realms of education, Yes. Right? So whether you get admitted into a program, whether you're eligible for a scholarship, um, again, all the things that we that we hope young young women, young girls, um, people who are non-conforming, that they would be able to have access to these opportunities. But you just brought up a really good point. I mean, it really should start young. It should start, you know, in middle school, younger, educating them, and 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 I brought this up uh, in the first half of my show, how for me, sports help build self-esteem. And it's something I still do today. Absolutely. I I, um, immigrated to the United States when I was very young. I remember starting first grade and being really freaked out to be able to go into a new school setting, Mm -hmm. not knowing the language. Um, I remember just screaming because Aww. our school was going to a, a library bus, and my parents had told me to go to school, come back, and I, I just didn't understand what was happening. But I remember playing on the playground, playing tetherball, mm-hmm. or playing foursquare. Like it was such a wonderful experience to kind of physically explore my body, yes. um, to make friends on the on the um, playground. I think it's such an important aspect of who we are. Absolutely. I remember um, going into a skateboard shop when I was younger, and boys really, like, no one would come up to me and ask me, you know, can I help you? And it was more like if there was a a boy there, you know, a teenager, they would go up to them. But for me, it was like I I didn't exist. Yeah, yeah, I think there's a lot of assumptions about what girls are capable of or Mm -hmm. what our interests are. So one of the things I really um, enjoy learning about Patsy Mink is that in some ways Title IX is about a negative right, that um, there should not be a denial of opportunity. Right. But she also advocated for the Women's Educational Equity Act, and that was about giving resources to help transform the curriculum. Because you can't just say, okay, don't discriminate. Yes. <laughs> like, how do you actually educate a whole new generation of people to really think about what's possible. 
How do you change the curriculum? How mm-hmm. do you change textbooks? And these, um, this were government resources given to schools at all different levels so they can really in, reinvest or invest in thinking about how do we teach um, what's possible for both boys and girls. So when was this done as far as feminist U.S. history? Was that in the 70s? Yes, yes. So Title IX was 72. The Women's Educational Equity Act, I believe, was passed in 1974. Um, And it stayed in existence for a long period of time. But it gave funding to feminist studies. It gave funding to women's uh, women's centers, um, provided funding for people releasing textbooks to retrain teachers. Right. Again, it's not just about outlawing something, but to really give people resources so they can actually transform our, our educational curriculum. And again, through education, what's possible for our broader society. And I was reading that when this was originally uh, instated by President Nixon, it, there, there wasn't really language around it. Well, I think um, when it was passed, it was part of a larger omnibus bill. And so there wasn't as much attention to Mm -hmm. Title IX. But once it was passed, there was a lot of discussion about, well, how do you actually implement it? How does does it translate into policies? How does it actually get implemented at the educational institutional level? And so then it became this long, drawn-out fight because the male athletics lobby got involved private schools got involved. They were all trying to find ways to exempt themselves from the language of Title IX. Um, so that's what's really fascinating to me, that it wasn't so much of a legislative battle before, but it was a, a huge political battle afterwards. I was reading also that um, when Patsy passed away, she was still in office, so uh, she was reelected to honor her? Yes. I mean, that is, first of all, I think it's so interesting to study the, the long course of her life. So she went into office in 65, federal office in 65, left office in 77, um, went back again in 1990 and passed away in 2002. Mm-hmm. But in between those, those terms, she was still politically active. She was in the State Department. She headed the Americans for Democratic Action which is an organization that Eleanor Roosevelt co-founded. And then she was also in local office. And um, I just found that she was such a political being. Yeah. And she really was committed to environmental justice, um, justice for impoverished people, um, you know, opportunities for women, access for childcare. So she was just so committed to all these different issues that she did not, she wasn't like, okay, yeah. I lost office in 77, I'm going to go into retirement right. and focus on my family. Like yes. Her life was about making political change. And yeah. so I think it was such this beautiful mark of honor that even after she passed away in 2002, her constituency elected her to office to say that we still That's honor beautiful. her. Um, yeah. And not everybody was necessarily going to agree with her political views, but I think they really recognize that she advocates for them. And it wasn't just her political stances, but she really believed in constituency service. So I would find letters from, like, fourth graders saying, I'm learning about politics and civics, Uh, and can you send me information? And she would do it. Oh, I love that. I I was also reading um, that this wasn't her first career choice. She wanted to become a doctor? 
Yes, yes. And that's really one of the motivations for her to advocate for Title IX. She had this ambition to be a doctor early on. She double majored in the science field. She was a really stellar student. She was involved in debate. She was involved in drama. Um, she was, you know, student government. So it was a big blow to her that she could not enter medical school. She was applying after World War II. The returning GIs were receiving benefits from the federal government for housing, for education, and they were seen as a sort of the rightful owners of these economic and educational opportunities. So when she was applying to medical school, maybe at most um, 5% of those, those opportunities were given to women. Um, and she received a rejection letter saying, basically, you know, we're not accepting you because you're a woman. And it was something that her daughter herself experienced when she was applying a generation later. Mm-hmm. She received a rejection letter saying, we've already fulfilled our quota of women. Right? So um, I think it's really these experiences that led people like Patsy Ming to advocate for educational equity. Wow. Did I don't know if you can answer this, but did um, Wendy always feel that she would carry on the work, you know, and the legacy of her mom? Um, Yes and no. I mean, they're an incredibly close-knit family. Okay. And um, they, you know, Wendy grew up talking about politics with her family. Um, Her father, I never had a chance to meet meet him, but he sounds like an incredibly supportive person. Um, You know, they were were part of an interracial marriage, which is groundbreaking at that time. He supported his wife in terms of her career and in terms of politics, which, again, is incredibly groundbreaking, 50s, 60s, and onward. Um, They would tell stories about how he would sometimes, you know, go through her hate mail (laughs) so that he could help protect her. That's sweet. And um, one of the interviews I did uh, after she passed away, he would go visit her every day and and talk to her mm. because they, they were such a close-knit couple. That is so beautiful. I think it's, yeah, it's such a beautiful story. Um, so I think Wendy grew up in this environment, and she supported her mother, and they collaborated politically together. Mm-hmm. But I don't think Wendy ever wanted to run for office. <laughs> you know, I think she was... Um, Those are big shoes to fill. Yes, and I think she has a deep commitment to thinking about politics and Mm -hmm. advocating for for, um, justice. Um, But I don't think she wanted to be a political candidate like her mother. Sure. So tell me about uh, your role as professor of Asian American Studies. Have you been able to bring Wendy in as a guest speaker, even virtually? No, um, we hosted an event um, in, I think, spring this year. Mm-hmm. And what was really beautiful is that there have been other people who have depicted Patsy Ming's life. And I really especially want to acknowledge Kimberly Bassford, who created a full-length documentary about Patsy Ming called The Head of the Majority. It's a wonderful, wonderful documentary. Also, Renee Tajima Pena, who is an executive producer of the Asian American PBS series. So we had this really wonderful roundtable talking about how we did research on Patsy Ming's life, um, how do we depict her life, or what elements of her life that we found really fascinating. And um, I especially also want to acknowledge Ben Proudfoot. He was not part of the event in spring, but he just recently released this beautiful documentary about Patsy Ming, Title IX, 
featuring Wendy Lee's perspective about um, a, a politically compelling episode in that history. He won the Academy Award this last spring Incredible. for Queen of Basketball, and mm-hmm. the film was, uh, was executively produced by Naomi Osaka. So it's been, it's been wonderful to think about the various ways in which we might bring Tassie Ming's political legacy to a broader audience. Yes. I would love to put those links up on my show blog, so maybe afterwards we could reconnect and I'll, I'll add them to the show blog. Yes. Yes, I'm happy to do that. That would be really important to do. Um, anything you'd like to share about your classes and inspiring students? I haven't been teaching as much recently because I direct a humanities center and I also edit two journals, one on women's social movements and the other one on Asian American and Pacific Islander history. Um, but I've loved working with students on, on independent research projects and I'm so proud of all the work that they've been doing. I'll just name a couple and then you can decide how much you, you want to include. Sure. Um, but one particular group has been using this a methodology called photo voice. It's using photography and storytelling to capture the worldview of, of people who tend to be left out mm-hmm. of the historical record and to advocate for social change. And this particular group documented the impact of COVID-19 on Asian American Pacific Islander communities. Um, the website that they created in the Instagram campaign is called Voice, Visualizing Our Identities and Communities for Empowerment. Um, such beautiful. I am going to look them up. Um, yeah, such beautiful and emotional photographs that really explore issues like mental health, um, you know, the difficulties of, of, and the pleasures of living in a multi generational household, um, the backlash against Asian Americans that are associated, that were blamed for COVID 19. I think that's a really an incredible project. I've also been working with a team of students to document the 1977 National Women's Conference. This was the first and only time the federal government gave money to create a national women's agenda. Pat helped initiate that legislation. But what I found so powerful is that it became this grassroots opportunity for women across the 56 states and six territories to come together, hold their own meetings, in their states and territories, mm-hmm. and to mobilize their their representatives to be able to go to Houston and talk about what was important for them. Um, so I'm working with a team at University of Houston to try to document the entire conference, and specifically in California, trying to document the 96 delegates and the five alternates who came from our state. We have the largest delegation okay. in Houston. Um, so those are just a couple examples of projects I've been involved in. Just a few things. <laughs> Just a few things you're working on. <laughs> well, it's so inspiring to be able to do this with students. Yes. Um, I mean, during the pandemic, it's been such a disempowering time period. Mm-hmm. And for them to be able to capture their lived reality and to be able to speak back and, and share what they've been experiencing is, is incredibly powerful. Yes. And for the National Women's Conference Project, um, some, of the, some of the students had a chance to interview the delegates from the 1970s. Really? And so this has been such an incredible experience of intergenerational connection. Oh, my gosh. Um, you know, that's, it's, it's just so powerful yes. um, to talk to people in their 70s, 80s, 90s who are lifelong committed women's activists. Yes. It's so inspirational for, for you know, our young people who are in their teens and 20s. That's right. 
I want to share something with you. So I was fortunate to get a um, fellowship with Columbia University's Journalism School and the uh, Age Boom Academy. Uh, it's the Robert M. Butler uh, Age Boom Academy. And I was reading a lot of research on the effects of the pandemic on students as far as depression, isolation, and then how if you connect them with older generations that are often pushed aside, neglected, and not tapped into as human capital, and you connect them, as you know, amazing conversations happen, right? And you lift both groups up. So I'm really fascinated by this. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like a wonderful project. It was. It was, and it really opened my eyes up into my own work and how important that is for people to take the time to connect. I think radio is such a wonderful medium. I um, remember learning English and certainly using the television, but I used to borrow records from the public library and listen to plays. Um, And I, I love hearing stories, audiobooks, listening to podcasts. And mm-hmm. I think there's a certain intimacy yes. that you have through storytelling and through sharing conversations via voice. There's just something I think that's much more um, personal about that, that, about that method of communication. Yes. I, you know, I, I was a huge uh, listener of radio growing up when I lived in New York growing up, and I would even try to call up and talk to the DJs. And that emotion and that connection, that excitement, it, it really resonated with me. Yeah, I think maybe because there's not necessarily a visual element. Right. right. And so I think it allows your your mind to imagine what that person might look like. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's, there's just something, I think, very connective about, about the radio. Yes, which is interesting because nowadays... Uh, more people are texting and they're not picking up the phone and calling. And I, I encourage people to pick up the phone and call people and hear voices and connect on that level. That's really wonderful. I mean, because when you think about it, when, you know, not everyone, you're sending these quick messages via text, you can't feel an emotion and uh, a connection the same way as a voice um, that's really interesting. I teach my students about oral histories and how that's such an important method for capturing history because a lot of the textual materials privilege those who have written in the past or whose writings were considered important enough to record. Mm-hmm. And so oral histories allow you access to those who traditionally get left out of history. Um, but I also encourage our students to think about the emotionality yes. of oral communication. Right. right. Um, you know, what are people, how are people saying what they're saying? Mm-hmm. Um, how are they reacting emotionally to the memories that they're recalling? I think that's such an important element of, of human communication. Definitely. And I will add one thing. I've, I've been doing this myself, and I encourage people to do this, is to connect with a relative or a friend and maybe do it on Zoom and capture that conversation. And I actually reconnected with someone, he was a stepdad I hadn't seen for 50 years, and I did it on Zoom. And the that moment, Judy, in seeing somebody after 50 years was was unbelievable. It was so beautiful. It sounds like such a powerful experience. Yeah. I'm so glad you were able to do that. Absolutely. So I would tell your students, connect, connect, you know, whether it's Zoom or phone, and record it, as you know. 
Yeah. Absolutely. I'm I'm going to my 35th high school reunion later this summer. So I have never I have not gone back um, for high school reunion previously, um, but I'm looking forward to reconnecting with with folks. Where is it? It's Spokane, Washington. Oh, beautiful! That's going to be exciting. Yeah, I grew up in Spokane, and I have a great affection for the Pacific Northwest. Beautiful. I'm looking forward to it. So can you give out uh, your website or people where people can find more about you, maybe reach out? Um, so I think they could probably just Google me. I'm, I'm Judy Wu at UC Irvine. Okay. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm on Instagram, Facebook. Okay, so. you're everywhere. I did put you on my show blog, so there is a link to you um, with more about... Your book, uh, Fierce and Fearless, and congratulations, beautiful book. Thank you so much for having me on and for the opportunity to speak to you. My pleasure. Could you stand by and not hang up? Yes, absolutely. Okay, stand by. Thank you. All right, I was talking to Professor Judy Wu, and if you missed any part of this, I will have the podcast up within an hour after I wrap. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Up next, Sheldon Abbott with Cure for the Blues.